John Ottman has been the editor and composer for director Brian Singer since their first short together, 1988's Lion's Den, and they continue to work on such hits as The Usual Suspects, the X-Men movies, Superman Returns, and Valkyrie. When Singer was fired off of the Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, it was Ottman, together with producers Graham King and Dennis O'Sullivan, who got this musical epic up on the screen. Ottman explains how he did it on today's crew call. The first question I have is, um, coming aboard the move, what did, what did Queen mean to you growing up? <laughs> did you see them in concert? And just basically the inspirations for this. I, I have to think that you saw a lot of concert yeah, you know, a lot of no, concert films. No, I was, I'm a geek that watched Star Trek growing up and, and knew nothing about Queen until I saw... Flash Gordon. <laughs> I admit it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's very much like when I, um, when, I, when I saw Star Trek, the motion picture, and discovered Jerry Goldsmith. And then I went, I was a crazy Jerry Goldsmith nut. He was a film composer, by the way. Right. Uh, for, for people who don't know who he is. And uh, then, we, then, then I became such a fanatic, I went back to the 60s and started collecting all of his film scores. So it was the same thing with Queen. Um, once they did that score, I was like, oh, this is cool. So then I started listening to all their stuff. And then, of course, I didn't realize that half the stuff I already knew on the radio was theirs. Like, I mean, this, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I go, oh, oh, they did that too? You know. So um, I came in it from a very strange angle. You know? Now, before you, saw, before you even assembled any piece of footage, did you go back, watch any of their concerts... Well, I watched Live Aid to refresh my memory, but then I sort of didn't want to watch it again because the idea wasn't to duplicate Live Aid. It was to uh, see it in a different way. You know, maybe if you were uh, flying the wall on the stage or, you know, you're behind the piano, you can see it from a different angle. And, and so uh, I didn't want to be influenced by it. I mean, um, so I just wanted to sort of create our reality of Live Aid. I mean, that, that was amazing. Following him in... Him being out there at the piano, just everything was intense about that. Mm. I mean, I saw when I saw Star is Born, I was like, wow, this is really amazing. Uh, this is, th- these are all their shots from Coachella. It feels like you're on stage. Right. No disrespect to them. You took things to another level in the finale of. Um, yeah. Well, the, the whole movie. idea of Queen, of course, is audience participation and you know, Brian May's character has a whole speech about that before the We Will Rock You uh, concert they give. And so um, that's his idea in, in the film. You know, I don't know how it really happened, but, but basically he tells Freddie, look, we need to sort of, you know, have them sing along. That's, what, they, that's what, the, what they've been wanting to do. So I knew Live Aid had to be all about that. Because, you know, as amazing as, as, um, as Queen is on stage, um, when I was cutting together, um, you know, when you don't show the audience or feel them or hear them singing... Uh, it just doesn't did not work nearly as well, um, and it's sort of power to their own concept that that's what it was all about, and so um, it just creates such emotion when you when you see and hear them clapping or singing. I'm going to come back to Live Aid. Yeah, let's talk about. Pain. That's what I would always say when I was cutting the film. <laughs> because, really? Well, it was the first thing we shot. I don't fucking fuck with my head the entire time I'm cutting the movie because I, I, it's all about Live Aid, all about Live Aid, and so it, it just that was haunted a, me well, forever. Now so we're whenever stay I had time, I would just work on it. You know, like okay, a little got a little time today. I'm going to work on Live Aid because it's the thing keeping me up, me up at night. Because, it, because it basically, if that didn't work, 
we were fucked, you know, because the film wouldn't would work because it's the audacity of this movie to basically end on Live Aid and that's the end of the movie. So that had to be that had to work amazingly well. Otherwise, the, everything we built up to was for nothing. So, so that's amazing. That was the fr- those were the first sequences shot. Yeah, and of course there was a bit of marriage with the original footage. You no, or no. you could see was huh. the, was the, was there. Could, no. Okay. Uh-uh. I mean, in our film? Yeah. No, was no. There this, a... this is all original footage. Everything is re-performed. Re, re, uh, I mean, even the audience is the fake audience. Or the mm-hmm. real, it's a real, they're real people, but they are duplicated, of course. And, and um, I think we had 100 extras out there. That's it. And then, of course, we, they were scanned. And um, three, they did a 360 scan of each person. And each person would do every song, sing and clap, whatever. And then they were duplicated and put in different clothes digitally and throughout the audience and you know so all that was built now when when you worked with brian and when you worked with dexter your style of editing is it is it the what we've seen in docs the thelma schoonemaker scorsese version of editing where the director's in there kind of micromanaging things or is it you stay with it you work on it and hey i'm ready and here it is well well i didn't (laughs) i kind of did this on my own (laughs) um because uh of certain situations on the so i i really uh my partners on it were became uh the producer graham king and his partner and dennis o'sullivan um and uh they became um we sort of had a a real uh eye-to-eye experience with each other in terms of um a taste factor you can't put a price on it we all had the same taste factor we all saw things the same way and so it was really uh, great to work with them i mean um yeah, uh, so but, but but you know when Brian and I do do a film, he 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 will say this. He doesn't like to influence what I do because he doesn't want me. He wasn't doesn't, doesn't want to screw up uh, something that might be uh, germinating in my head. He doesn't want to influence it at all. So um, he will go away for a while, and I will cut the film together, and he'll come back and react to it. Um, it's just this time he didn't come back because he was the, you know so. Going yeah. all the way back, though, to Usual Suspects, was that always yeah, your Yeah, I mean, that, that, he, that, that was his thing, because he, he's just terrified he's going to uh, influence me to go down one road when I could have gone down another one that he would have been surprised and titillated by. So, um, you know, he, I'm sure it's, this isn't uncommon, he wants to walk in the editing room and be wowed and excited by something I do that way he wasn't expecting. You know. the, um, so tell us about the... The Live Aid finale, what, I mean, just we felt we were on stage. It was just, it was like a riveting concert film. You felt you were there. It was, you were in the mix of it all. Was that, was that the gist you were working with? What was your, what was your MO in terms of what did you want? What did you want to carry? The bottom line for me is I wanted to evoke emotion, you know, because it's the end of the film. So if you're not moved, it's a, it would be a disaster. So um, you know, and I, not to repeat myself, but the whole movie—I already saw. It, I always saw this as the Death Star sequence, like in Star Wars, because the whole film's building to it. And in our film, it's like well, Live Aid. Live Aid. What about Live Aid? Did you hear about Live Aid? Did you get the call about Live Aid? It's like it's like the, the, the build of Live Aid. Even when they were walking on the stage, I made it like a boxing match. I I sort of like intercut it with Jim Beach at the controls and back to them walking up to the stage. And he turns around. It's like it's almost like going to go on on and on and, and have a fight, or you know, on on, the, on stage. And um, so trying to build the anticipation of it. And so you have to pay off 
the promise you've made, <laughs> that's going to be something re- really great. And so that, that's what almost shut me down when I'm trying to edit the rest of the film. So I just go away from it for a while and like and face it again. Wow. Because there were so many ways it could be put together. I mean, you know, um, how much crowd participation do I show? How much do I don't? You know, um, and there's budgetary. Uh, every time I would shoot off, you know, show a uh, shot off the stage, it's, it's, you know, 50 grand every time I, you know, show a sliver of green because they got to fill that in with the audience. And so, um, you know, my original version of it was, you know, much bigger and showed more crowd. But we, you know, the realities of, of making any movies, you have to pare it down. So um, I had to cut like a million and a half dollars out of uh, visual effects to, to get wow. it going. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Freddie, Freddie the man. And, 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 Rami, and Rami's spectacular performance. How did you... How did you get around that? Like, what was key in that? Was it close-ups? Was it... Uh, I mean... Was it nuance? Was it... Well, it's like with all editing, it's uh, you take a variety of things the actor did and you you shape it, give the peaks and valleys and... And, and, uh, yeah, do all the things that you do in your manipulation, even though... I mean, that, that's not dissing the actor. The actor was great, you know, but you, but in the editing room, you can all, you're always uh, sort of, you know, heightening the, the, uh, the performance by shaping it, you know. Um, and there's a wonderful pace and momentum with the music. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's a roller coaster that doesn't stop. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, I think there's, the movie could have been a different film where it was much more morbid and, uh, and, and yes, uh, Exploring way more of the dark, darker side of what happened to Freddie, but then it wouldn't have had the wider appeal. And and I don't like to think like a producer because I could like to make good good movies. But the way I think about it is is um, you know if you're a Queen fan, just like if I'm a Star Trek fan, I want to indoctrinate people into the original Star Trek and watch those original episodes and and get them and get them excited about it. And if I'm a Queen fan, I want even I want younger people to. Um, embrace Freddie Mercury and and celebrate him, but if it goes too in, too far in the in the in the in the direction of R, um, now there's a whole section of people I can't bring in to watch this movie, and so that was why we wanted to make something that was accessible to everyone, and it's a celebration of Freddie, and it does talk about what his darker what happened to him and but but um you know so it was a tr- it was a very tricky in that regard because i don't think the film would have been made had we not you know been able to make it for a wider audience you know well the young crowd is there this past um this past friday i was i live up in valencia i was picking up pizza and right in the room next to in the in the in the restaurant there was another room and there was karaoke going on and there had to be like i don't know 30 or 40 teens in there. They are rocking Bohemian Rhapsody like 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 it just dropped on the radio. That's great. Yeah. Like a month ago. Yeah. I mean, awesome. right there and then that said to me, this thing is going to be huge. Um, and that's the way I know Fox sees it. It's it's not just yeah. it's not just those that grew up with it in the 70s and the 80s with Queen. It's it's the Suns and then, and then I hope so. They sunk, a lot, they sunk a lot of cash into that premiere. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest thing I've ever been to in my life is insane. So, um, one of the great segments—it's in the trailer. It's also in the movie—is mm-hmm. watching them make Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, that's my favorite scene in the film. Tell me about that. Tell me about the inspiration and in, in, in building well, that. Uh, 
that's one of those scenes where I, I, you, it's both a nightmare and a blessing where the actors go off to ch- go off the the uh, the plan and they start uh, riffing or doing uh, improv and so forth and which is great but often an actor will come up with something and get, but there's no reaction from the other actor because they're not there so then you have to you sort of so what I did is I took all of the um, the improv and scripted it out so there was some logic to it like I would take a reaction from later in the scene to react to. So, you know, uh, Rami Malek saying something that wasn't on the script, and so and so it was sort of an interplay. So to me, I was very um, proud of what I assembled, and what it gave, what it did, is, of course, give it a reality. Because whenever an actor does that, it's it's real because they're not really on the script. Um, and so, and then as soon as I created it, I was angry because. I just assumed it was going to be destroyed by the studio or something. So, you know, I, 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 I do this as a composer, too. I'll compose. If something's going really well and I'm doing a really good cue or doing a really good scene, I get pissed off preemptively because I know it's going to get fucked up by somebody, but it didn't. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it never changed a frame from when I uh, cut it together. And it's a long sequence, so I was assuming that because of its length, it was going to get, someone was going to shoot it apart, and um, it didn't, So, because uh, it was a crowd pleaser. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I was proud of the sequence, and I'm very happy it, 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 got, it was uh, unmolested in the film. Yeah. And great comedic timing, too. There's yeah, very I mean, funny moments. Yeah, that's, that, that was the idea, and, and, and those moments would not have happened without the improv. Those were all the improv things. You know, like, uh, you know, Brian kind of shaking, you know, that was a line... Um, uh, uh, put more heart and soul into it and whatever and I took um, a piece of Brian kind of flagellating his body so, you know things like that and it made it fun you know or or pick or you know push the button Freddie push the button and Mike oh yeah yeah I know I got it. you know things like that so that's beautiful so yeah. is there usually a lot of Im- does does Brian usually incorporate a lot of improv on, well, on the set because uh, he- I know for an editor that could be a nightmare. Well, yeah, but I think most editors welcome that. It is a nightmare, but it's a nightmare you welcome because because it gives you stuff to work with and to and I think I I think a lot of editors like to take take ownership of something that wasn't planned so they could own it, you know, and say I created this thing because it wasn't really part of the game plan. Um, so I mean, I think any um, director is going to encourage an actor to do that you know as long as as long as the the the, the main plan uh there's at least a couple of takes where we got the stuff down that was scripted you know um especially for an ensemble piece and, and if actors are in the moment together let them do it you know um it's like when the when they're doing um the end of the the, the bow wrap sequence where the ba- they hit the baffles and they all fall over you know things like that and just you you want to just let it happen you know now as been as was reported Brian was on the movie, had to leave. Dexter came in to finish it. What were the challenges in editing for two well, directors, or was it basically Graham? Well, Graham the, and Dennis. D- Dexter left after about four weeks. Uh, I think he was on shooting for two weeks and left after about four weeks. So I was, which is basically me, um, seeing it through with Graham and, and his partner Dennis. So. Uh, I like you know I, I so it was great for me because I like people I like to be left alone so just leave me alone let me let me just do the movie so um, and and frankly though the the funny the funny thing is, is it wasn't that different for me because Brian usually left, leaves me alone so um, the the part I missed not having a director there was um, when I really 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 want something I can use the director to go fight for what I want you know because I don't have necessarily that much authority so um but i did have such a great relationship with graham king 
and Dennis O'Sullivan that they um, they acted on my behalf when I was freaking out about something. You know, and, and, and we all had to agree on it, of course, if you, if, they, if you agreed with me. We would debate internally, and if we really uh, believed in fighting for something, we would fight for it. Where were you last December? Where were you in the cut? Because you get footage. You Footage is shot. You get it. You begin editing. You begin uh, right, away. You, you're, right away. You're, you're feverishly editing as you're shooting because uh, you get the call the next day from like the line producer saying, "Can we cut? Can we tear down the set? Can we tear down the set? Does the scene work? You know?" And like, I don't freaking know. I barely cut the scene. You know, so they're always wanting to hear right away how it's working. You know, um, and I'm old school. Every editor works differently, but um, I cannot cut a scene until I've seen everything, every frame, whatever. And so it, uh, it's 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 a really uh, it's a discipline. Times a million because the, the film is flooding in, uh-huh. and you just want to cut it. But I refuse until I've seen every frame. So, so, so you technically would not put together a first cut nothing. until you had everything from Dexter or anyone. Yeah, I, Got wa- it. I watch it in real time because for me, I germinate when I watch right. it. Even though I'm sitting there tapping my fingers because oh my god, I have, I have hours of footage to go through. I'm thinking about the scene, and so by the time I'm ready to cut the scene, I have seen my mind. I know what I want to do. Yeah. Because I come from the old school where you had to preconceive the scene in your head before you cut. Were committed to cutting it on the film, which is very laborious with your splicer and so forth. Um, you know, the newer generations just slap stuff on a wall until, well, I can do this version, I can do that version, I can do a hundred different versions of the scene. Yeah, but there's no point of view. So, right. uh, so I, I just come from that discipline. What um, what was left? That Dexter did like what were there were there certain scenes that he worked on specifically or was it just exterior you know just miscellaneous exterior that or uh, this or, or was it a particular sequence? It was a film? lot of the Mary Freddie stuff was um, what was left over to do. Got it. Um, that and uh, you know a few a few I'm trying to think um, just a, a few you know which uh, tertiary uh, connecting connecting fiber and so forth. I can't remember exactly, but there's... What was, you know, and we talk about a moment when, on the roller coaster, where, you know, things just kind of come 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 in, come back down to earth for a second. They were the Mary Freddy scenes. Uh, it, and the one that always comes to mind is the one where he, he reveals to her, you know, that he's, that he's bi and the concert's going on television. Well, she says you're not bi, you're gay, Freddy. He, yeah. Um, yeah. What What were those? What What did like when you were harnessing those moments together? What was What was important for you? Well, I mean, what, no matter what the scene is in in, in a dramatic scene like that, it's just like it's. it's I mean, not to be obvious, but it's emotion. You know, you you, you want to move the audience somehow. I mean, that when he uh, reveals, excuse me, to Mary that he's you know he tries to cover it and buy, and she says, "No, you're gay." Um, that was a um, uh, another scene where, rather than score it, which is a whole other subject we can call on, rather than put film music in there, which would have been reduced it to like a TV movie, I wanted to use um, uh, Love of My Life that was playing on the TV. Um, and that was so much more emotional than a cliche film music would have done. So I really spent a lot of time in that scene. Things you know, things that a your regular filmmaker, or even a jaded filmmaker, wouldn't 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 recognize, or you know, wouldn't recognize because because it's very uh, subtle and subliminal. What I did with the TV set, because I didn't want as a fine line of like, if a TV set's too loud, you're not going to listen to what their conversation is. But if it's not, if it's too soft, it's not going to be emotional resonance. So, and then I and then I would edit it so I would time out 
the most devastating moments of love of my life from the Brazil Brazil concert over moments of of the scene. So um, to me, it's it, it just made the scene heartbreaking. Um, as far as let's talk about music, yeah. Because uh, I think you're the only person in town that edits and actually composes score. Others have done it, but not to which the is ridiculous crazy. degree. I have but you like, do it, and it's yeah. phenomenal. Um, and I know in my head, <laughs> your your theme, the usual suspects by heart, because that's oh, thank that's you. my favorite. Um, Me too. I sing it every night. <laughs> did did um was tell me about what because there wasn't a score. No score for this. Uh, there was supposed. I mean, the there was uh, the um, expectation there would be. And so, uh, I mean, I know I, when I read the script, I was like, I don't think there should be any music in this movie, but who knows? And everyone's like, yeah, but you know biopics. There's always going to be these moments where there's going to have to be score. And I said, that's true, I guess. But as, we, as I started putting it together, I was like, I just don't see where a score makes sense in this film because, um, you know, and it's against my own self-interest as the guy who can write the score to the film and make residuals and la, 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 you know. But, you know, and, and, and frankly, I never really commit a year of my life to a film as an editor unless I get a score out of it because it's, I, I leave my scoring career for so long. Um, it, it's costly and not great for my scoring career to go away for so long. But it was the right thing to do. As the filmmaker, I was like, no, this, it's not right. So, when did you, when, when is that decision made? Uh, well, I would say the three-quarter mark. Uh, the writing was on the wall for a while for me and with Graham. We both knew it, but it was sort of like at a point I just had to say, you know, do you see score? I, and, you know, and, and I wasn't going to answer his question for him. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> so, all right. So I removed my name from uh, the title sequence I created. And, um, and, uh, and what I did is um, I put, you know, like opera in a couple key sequences where Freddie's talking to Mary because, and it makes sense because he listened to opera a lot. So, um, again, and if, had I scored it, it would have just brought the film down to a typical baloney movie, you know. So was there a conversation even with, with the Queen guys, Brian May and whatnot? Well, they originally had assumed there was going to be score as well. I mean, original score. Like even like yeah. an instrumental arrangement of Don't Stop Me Down, well, that Don't was Stop Me Now, Slow Down. We, we talked about that, but there was never really a part in the film that made sense. Like, you know, if he's talking yeah. to Mary, it wouldn't make any sense to put a, a, an incarnation of Queen over those scenes. We talked about it. So they, uh, Brian May had assumed that I was going to write an original score. And in a way, it was better that I didn't, uh, for another reason, is that I didn't have to go through the whole approval process with Brian May, and, you know, he would have freaked out about X, Y, and Z, and so it just saved a lot of drama, I think, you know, to, to not do it. But, and I think the film's better for it. I mean, it's, it makes the film pure and timeless, you know. Well, how was it decided which songs would go in to the movie? Well, that was mainly scripted in the script, so um, before I came along, and that was, script was, of course, a 10-year development process, so by the time I, I read it, um, those were the songs that we were going to put in. Because yeah. I was upset the bicycle <laughs> yeah, wasn't I mean, in the movie. It's, you know, there's always that thing, you know, it's like, I wish they'd been a little a little nod to um, uh, Flash Gordon, you know, just yeah. like a little vignette, like in the working on the movie, but you know, you can't do everything. I mean, that that's, that's the thing about biopics, and, and you just can't do everything everybody wants, you know, and whether it's, it's, it's facets of his life, or whether it's a song, you just can't make everybody happy, you know. Did you, did you speak with, with Brian about, um, and people like Jim Beach about Queen scoring Flash, was that? 
Was that no, because I, I because never... it's always you we like for me, I'll think, oh, wouldn't that be cool if such and such a pop artist did the score to this movie? Yeah. And then you speak to like heads of music at studios and they're like, no, no, no. no That's you know, the worst norm- idea because it, they won't it, hand it in on time. Well, no, normally like it's a really bad idea and, and normally it, it's always a rescore. But there are, mo- there are times where it's so much better than if you'd hired a freaking film composer, speaking as one, um, because it just brings something interesting that a, a composer, a film composer, would never do, you know. And so, I mean, Flash Gordon is not a great movie, but it is great because of the music. Um, and, and it would not be the film it was, ever, you know. Um, and uh, I didn't bring it up to Brian May because you never know how people are going to react to a question. Like, I could say, oh, that was great. He might go, that was fucking horrible. You know what I mean? So I didn't want to bring it up, you know. So um, As far as uh, this is going way back because I'm a huge Usual Suspects fan. Mm-hmm. So, and I might have even asked you about this long ago. Um, there's always been a legend that there was a cut and 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 um, uh, Gabriel saw it and was upset that he wasn't Kaiser Soze. No. Or that at certain points, different people were Kaiser Soze. No, that's total crap. <laughs> that's, to- that's total? No, we, 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 the, the cut I did was pretty much the cut that was released. We had one screening at, in Santa Monica just to see how an audience would react. We had no idea if people were even following this movie or not. And uh, there was a, a little shoe leather when they assault the boat. And there was like a couple shots of uh, Baldwin that we cut out. That's it. That was the only thing. I think that comes from the fact that Brian had shot um, just for the hell of it. Because, again, I don't know what John's going to do with the footage, but I want to give him stuff. Mm. He had shot these shots of Gabriel Byrne raising a gun and shooting. You know, and, and, and even though that would give, a, give it a, it, be a misdirect... You know, um, I did end up using that because when Chaz Palminteri is is uh, talking to Verbal and it's this whole misdirected audience that Keaton was Kaiser Souza, I used that footage where he had just shot that for the hell of it. So maybe that's where that came from. I don't know. You know. Now, um, I always when I love that movie so much and love the ending so much. It's it's one of the few times I've actually sat in a cinema and really been jarred by the ending. And mm-hmm. we'll never. I saw it. Uh, Lincoln Square, New York City. I remember mm-hmm. exactly. Time Bought the soundtrack <laughs> immediately afterwards. Uh, Bought nice. the score yeah. at Sam Goody's immediately afterwards. Um, the, I always saw that... The, I always interpreted that Kaiser Soze could be anybody. And mm. a lot of people would argue with me and say, no, it's Kevin Spacey's character. I like to believe it's Kevin Spacey's character. And then in the audio commentary, the first one that was cut for the DVD and for the, the videotape, it had it had Brian and Christopher talking over it. And one of the last words, I swear, I think it was McQuarrie who said, it's whatever you want to interpret it to mm-hmm. me. Was it, was it always meant to be open-ended? Or no, was it- I, I think the intention was for it to be this guy pulled a wool over everyone's eyes and it's him. Yeah. You know, I think later if people were confused or coming to it with different points of view, you could say, sure, it could be anybody. But I mean, I mean, as the editor, my, my feeling was that it was him, you know? Um, and, and, and that, and that so much of his story was true, but other parts of it may not have been true, you know? Um, so that's part, that part of what was true and what was not true is that left to interpretation. But, um, I, I, I mean, it's verbal 
Kent is Kajasose. Yeah. So, so brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Um, there was something you've said before about um, Star Trek Two. If you ever want to solve mm. any kind of problem. Yeah, it's the Bible. It's, why it's, it's is like, that? Tell us well, why that it's is. it's such a good screenplay. If, it's so funny. I just watched it yesterday trying to indoctrinate someone else into the world. That, so, that's, is, that, is, that, is that I heard that the first time from you. Well, both Brian and I would call that the Bible to refer to. What, like, what would Jesus do? That's what would Star Trek yeah. II do. Because um, there are so many, it's such a great script in terms of character development and, 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 and positing um, an idea in the beginning and revisiting it later and re- referring to, um, you know, in Star Trek II, it's the Kobayashi Maru test or how you deal with life is important as you deal with death and that, that book ending the film. And, um, and so it's just, it's just a, it's, it's basically a, a lesson in, in good screenplay writing and also amazing character development and having a character have a journey and, and go somewhere, which is rare in, in current films. So that's why, you know, that script is so brilliant. And, and my, whenever I show that film to someone, I go, you know, the first Star Trek film was one of the most expensive films ever made in film history. It was like in, in 1976 when they were making, it was like $65 million, which is like over $300 million today. But, um, but the next movie... They, they made for $7 million, Star Trek II, for $7 bucks, um, And so you can see it on the screen that it feels a little more like a TV show. And it's frustrating for me to see a film that was directed, because if had Robert Wise directed Star Trek II, it would be the best of both worlds, you know. But what, what happens, but the script um, transcends everything else. And that's why people love Star Trek II. It's a script. You know? And you said... You can look to it and solve problems. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you refer to, you can use it as an example to someone, you know, um, to say, look, you know, here's how they, 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 went, they, they, they wrote their story and they came up with ways to bookend ideas and to develop a character. You know, look where this character, look where Savick goes, how, look, look where she, her journey goes, look where Captain Kirk's journey goes. He's a guy who's burned out and feels like he's aging and he's given up and, you know, a two guy who at the end of the movie says, I feel like I'm young again. You know, it's like I'm getting chills just thinking about it, you know. And so it's like that's a good freaking screenplay. Yeah. Have you ever wanted to direct? Yeah. I mean, I did direct a teen horror film years ago, and, but uh, that's a whole other long story. Um, and I do, but I'm at the point in my life where uh, if I were 35 and someone said, there's this movie. I'd say, sure, I'll direct it. No problem. But when you're my advanced age <laughs> and, and, you know, and I have a body work and so forth, I don't feel like I don't need to direct for the sake of directing. But if someone gives me a script that's amazing, I will, I will, I will want to do it. Absolutely. You know? And so I, I would like to do that. So coming away from it, though, uh, people, you know, you've got the audience. They're, they're sitting through credits and and they're just having a good time without right, being right. really corny about it. Um, have you ever seen that before? I mean, yes, you, you see at the X Men movies, and everybody loves the X Men movies. But this yeah, is well, something this was, that really you touches know, you really several, felt it, especially in the test screenings, and also because this has more humor than uh, we would have had in some past X Men films. So when they're all Cracking up, you know, and the, you realize they're totally on, on board. I know? mean, in crafting this, is it all organic or you're like, or is it like, wow, I didn't, that's amazing that they're responding to Yeah, it. well, I didn't, uh, I knew, I, I, I have a, a good sense of where people are going to laugh. Um, it was, uh, I just have a good sense about it. But um, even I was surprised. And of course, we're, 
we're screening the audiences who are a lot of Queen fans. But but even I was surprised that even in jokes I didn't even expect a laugh, but just a, it's just a humorous moment. They laugh their heads off, you know. Like when Jim Beach says when he says uh, Miami, you know, like he he owns his new his new the whole audience loses it, you know. Um, and there was debates like like I don't think they're, they're going to laugh when you know when when uh, Ray Foster says um, you know what about. I'm in love with my car. And I said, that's going to get the hugest laugh. And people, oh, no, I don't sure it's going to work. Oh, it's going to freaking work, you know. And, and it did because, you know. And so the moment they laughed at that joke, which is basically a setup from many scenes before, you know they're on board. And, um, and I remember when we first screened Suspects that there was a joke in the lineup, uh, not the lineup, but when, they, when they're um, all together in a cell at the beginning of the film, there's a, boat, there's a, boat, there's a joke about, there, there, there's talk about this boatload of guns or something. And then way the hell later in the film, you find out that was just bullshit, and the whole audience laughs. And so you're like, holy crap, they are listening, to, and they are on board. And so that was sort of that moment in Bo Rap when they laughed at that car joke. I knew. And when know. did you set up? Tell us when that joke got set well, up. Well, at the farm, uh, in the in the in, there's this, in the kitchen, um, they're ragging on Roger uh, for having written this song, and, they, and the Deacon and, and Brian May are like, you know, you can do better than this. Like, what 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 is this car? What does this song even mean? I'm in love with my car, you know. And so the more I milked that, setting that joke up, the better later when Ray Foster says, how about, you know, that? And then, and then it cuts to the reaction, the astonishment that, that Ray Foster, this EMI executive, wanted to put that on the record. And then later it's even uh, hearkened again when, uh, when uh, Freddie's talking to, um, uh, oh, the radio personality in Britain. Um, um, what the hell is his name? Uh, the, the, Kenny. Kenny. Um, I'm having a brain fart. Kenny, what's his face? <laughs> the um, um, they were close. They were very close. Yeah, friends. they were very he close. Launched, anyway, Kenny says, uh, "Oh, the yeah. though, I see one one side of this record's on. I love my car." He goes, "No, the other side. The other side." You know. So and then the audience laughs again. You know. So milking the joke. And that's important to know that in editing, you know, whenever people say, "Correct me if I'm wrong here," uh, there's something wrong with this. There's something wrong with this moment in the film. That's not necessarily true. It's something prior to that. Yeah, something absolutely. needs to be fixed. Yeah. yeah, prior to that. So that's the interesting thing about editing and setting up. Yeah, and laying your groundwork. Because you know, I always say you know, people talk about the intrinsic scenes or the the, the intricacies of, of the individual scenes uh, that an editor does in a film. But but the bigger job is stepping back and shaping the story as a whole. Once you've cut those scenes together, that's the that's the big job because especially in a biopic because someone's life is so huge and there's so many things and how do you pare that down how do you tell that story have it be entertaining and um, and do service to the character you know so um, it's the macro the macro view sometimes that people don't credit uh, the editor for as well because it's that's that's the true storytelling you know one of my last questions is is a philosophical one can a film completely be saved in editing because sometimes if you have a you know if you have a broken script yeah can can a film be saved in editing i think it can i mean having said that uh not this film i'm not saying yeah, this yeah, film. No, no, i'm just said, saying in general because it can certainly be made let me put it this way a film can definitely be ruined by bad editing or it can be or a film may never see its potential if, it, if there's a, a a bad editor um, so you can cl- definitely take a, a, a film that could have been good and make it and make it uninvolving uh, as if you are not an experienced or a good editor, a good storyteller. Now, and you can make a, 
a mediocre film much better, I think. But if it's really not in the DNA of the script, or if someone's been miscast, that is a nightmare for, for an editor. I've had the experience, I won't talk about which ones they were, but as soon as you know the actor's wrong, you know you're fucked. And you can try all the dialogue, dialogue replacement in the world, you can do all the, the quick editing and, and the, whatever you can to manipulate that moment, but if, but if the chemistry is wrong, especially between two leading people, you're screwed. And so uh, that an editor can make better, an editor can make more palatable, you can make, in the course of making the film, you can all, we can all make each other believe that, oh my God, we've done it, we've, we've made it better, it's going to be great, but at the end of the day, it's really not, it's better than it was, but it will never be what it could have been, you know. And that's the power of casting the right people. If, you, if the casting's wrong, even if the actor's good, if they're wrong for the part, you're, you're, you're screwed, you're DOA, you know. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you.